On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we look at the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. Today we're looking at the Tim Burton fantasy drama Big Fish from 2003. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the boogie woogie man, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Uh, Doug, I do not approve of either boogieing or woogieing. Never heard someone pronounce approve in that particular manner. I should have started over. As soon as I said it, I'm like, fuck, I got to go again. But I couldn't. I just, I just, I went, you know, and now it's too late. Now I've lost the moment. I've lost the momentum. It's fine. I approve. I approve of this message. You should do your, do your, cock- we can both do Cockney accents. All right. I- what? Right. Are we ready? Oh. Anyway, let's let us stop that right now. Um, Hello, Liam. I don't know if you know this, but <laughs> not to break things down, the world is being ravaged by an ongoing pandemic right what now. What the fuck? What? Mm-hmm. See, you know, Doug. People, listeners, know. I moved to the Chicagoland area, uh, and you know, as is tradition, um, now that it's after Christmas and everything is so cold that I want to die, sure. I haven't mm-hmm. left the house since Christmas Day. So good, I have no idea, idea what's yeah. going on in the world. It's not. Well, I could tell you, <laughs> not to spoil <laughs> anything, it's not good. Liam, I had my booster three hours ago by sure. at the time that we're recording this. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to suffer any uh, uh, side effects, you'll be able to hear them, listeners, in real time. As we talk about the life and work of actor Steve Buscemi on this episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. Fingers crossed for gastrointestinal distress. Yeah. <laughs> I'm usually suffering that on one of our, <laughs> our shows. Liam, there's been some big news in the Steve Buscemi-verse since yes. the last time we recorded How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. Uh, the, the last time we recorded was in early October of 2021. Since then, there was some uh, big incident that actually ties into the title of this show. Now, this title of our show comes from an episode of 30 Rock, where we find out that the character that Steve Buscemi played on that was working undercover in a high school, pretending to be a high school student, which is not to explain the humor, <laughs> Liam. It's funny because he looks so goddamn weird and old. He's, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened is that on Halloween, Steve Buscemi recreated his, quote, fellow kids look from 30 Rock. So uh, basically, he was out on a stoop dressed as uh, the character that he played on that show in the same costume with that, that music band shirt on. Liam, it's like everything's coming full circle. Steve Buscemi, he gets the memes. He gets the joke. He embraces it. He's a beloved figure. What do you think? Bold of Buscemi to think that anyone remembers the show 30 Rock. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I'm kind of half joking, but there's a part of me that thinks if that hadn't become such a popular meme, it would actually be a very unsuccessful costume because I, I've found that outside of people in our age range, you know, late 30s, early 40s, there has been a brain wipe that 30 Rock ever happened. Like I It's don't, true. I th- and I think that's going to happen more and more with TV because um, there aren't reruns anymore. Right. Like something can become available on Netflix, but you're not forced to watch it. Like 
you know, when I tell people about my love for Night Court, their assumption oftentimes is that I was up watching new episodes of Night Court. No, 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 no. Television forced me to like Night Court. I wanted to watch TV at a certain time, and I had to choose between Night Court or any number of other terrible things. So, of course, Night Court won. What choice did I have, you know? There was so much growing up of what we watched was like, might as well this, might as well be this, because what other option? Can't stare at a book. <laughs> Can only stare well, at the screen. <laughs> it's like when younger, it's like when younger millennials or Gen Z make fun of older millennials or Gen X for being obsessed with The Simpsons. In my area, The Simpsons was on three times a day, every day. Like, we would watch the same episodes. Like, oh, it, like, you know, when it, when it went on the cycle of the reruns, right? And it's like, oh, it reached that episode again. Didn't matter. We just watch it again and again because we just were used to watching it every single day. Yeah. I mean, we, I, and it wasn't just like growing up. That tradition of watching The Simpsons reruns in, you know, syndication. That was in college, man. That's how lame yeah. my college was. People would finish dinner as quickly as they could so they could rush back to whatever lounge in their dorm <laughs> to watch fucking uh, Simpsons with friends every day. It was just part of the culture. And not just the, you know, we had it at, you know, 6.30 and 7, and then again at like 11.30 or 11 or whatever. People would be up in the lounge at the 11 o'clock one watching The Simpsons. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it, of course, I grew up in a place with a ridiculous time zone, so I was watching it at all weird hours. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, Liam, I have a question for you that might be a little distressing for both of us, which is, what proportion of the people who saw C. Buscemi dressed as this character knew him from the meme, right, recognized it, but didn't recognize it that it came from 30 Rock or any show at all? They just knew the meme. 50%. I would say at least 50%, right? Especially right. with the knowledge that even in a neighborhood wherever Steve Buscemi lives in New York, that it's probably still a larger proportion of younger people, right? If someone was encouraging another person to remember the show 30 Rock existed, which of their many stars would actually be useful to get them to remember the show? Well, remember it fondly, you mean? Well, in the sense of like, if you, you know 30 Rock, it had Tina Fey on it. How do you think Tina Fey is the link, or is it Alec Baldwin, or is Tracy it Morgan? Tracy Morgan. I actually think it might be Tracy Morgan. Is like, though he's he's kind of um, he's kind of fell off a little bit in the last. Yeah, few he's years for, but for he's, a lot of. People. I think he's making a bit of a comeback right now. Mm. I see him on more stuff now. But uh, I actually think also the what was the page's name? Oh, uh, Jack McBrayer. I bet Jack would have just as much pull with certain audiences as anyone oh. else on that show. Let alone. I you know the people on the show who at the time had a lot of memification who now no one knows like that Jonah guy with the hats. Yeah, I bet you Jonah most, Yeah, I, I bet you most Judah people, is his name, not is Jonah. It Judah. I don't fucking know. <laughs> hat guy. I mean, first of all, the the fact that that dude's whole vibe is that hat. Like he was in the opening credits of that show for the entire run. To, do you think anyone has beaten him up about the hats yet? I don't. I mean, look, it's his thing, right? What are you supposed to do? You're famous for a thing. You got to keep doing uh, the thing. Rubs me wrong every time yeah. I think about it. Mm-hmm. The hats is the thing. Uh, anyways, <laughs> the the point is this. I don't even know. In fact, I might even think. Um, uh, who was the? Uh, I know I'm terrible with. My it's funny. I've, 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 I have seen every episode of Thirty Rock, so hopefully I can answer these questions. The, the blonde actress on the show who was Jane like, Krasinski. Jane Krasinski. She was on Kimmy Schmidt, right? Uh, she was also on Kimmy Schmidt. That's right. So which, I, by the so way, I, I think she... that has made even less of a cultural impact. Do which you was... think so? Yeah. 
Oh, man. I was about to say maybe she has more of a pull because of Kimmy Schmidt, but I don't know. Well, remember, you know, Kimmy Schmidt, she's tied up in the fact that she was supposed to be playing an indigenous character on it. Oh, I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) And what is Tina Fey up to these days? Uh, she's on, um, actually, no, she's suddenly back in the consciousness. I take it back because she's on, uh, only murders in the building. Oh, she's in that, that Steve Martin. Yeah, man. Yeah. She's the, uh, she's the, she's the podcaster who's trying to rip off their good idea. Well, I have not watched that yet. Uh, even though (laughs) this is an unpopular opinion in my own circle, I like Martin Short a lot. And of course I like Steve Martin and it did look like a funny show and people seem to like it. It also seemed like a very strange thing to exist. It's fucking magical. It's it is a strange <laughs> thing. I, I mean, I think it's a strange thing to exist because it's like, oh, this is good TV. Like I, I just feel like a lot of TV that is like very much TV. Like the TV that's still pretty good is TV that you're like, this could be a movie, but we just want to make more money. Sure. So we're making it a show. Like, of course, that's pretty good. But this is clearly a show. It, it is a TV show. It as much as it could be a TV show without having commercial breaks, and yet. It's very good. And that's like, I think that's rare. A lot of stuff that feels like TV also feels bad. It feels like not worth watching. And this is like the, one of the few exceptions to that. Liam, the biggest news that's occurred in the Buscemi-verse since the last time that we recorded was the news that C. Buscemi was given the keys to New York City, the Big Apple. Uh, outgoing New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio awarded 9-11 firefighter, actor, and Brooklyn native Steve Buscemi with keys to the Big Apple. To the, Blasio, to the Windy yeah, Apple? To the Windy Apple. To the Moldy uh, Chestnut? We're looking at a picture right now of Steve Buscemi accepting it from a very pleased-looking Bill de Blasio. My yeah. understanding, I don't know a lot about American Someone's politics. more excited about this than, <laughs> than the other. It well, is a nice-looking key. <laughs> but Steve but looks like he's just there for formality. He's not really stoked to be there. I wonder if Steve Buscemi is a fan of New York City, outgoing New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Nah, man. Fuck your life. No yeah, way. Yeah, I don't think anyone likes that guy, so probably he's not. But what are you going to do? Not take the key to the city? He can go into any apartment he wants now. <laughs> yeah, or those secret rooms in the in the subway where they have all the, the uh, bomb shelter snacks. Yes, so that's Steve Buscemi's going to get his bomb shelter snacks, probably. Mm. I'm jealous. <laughs> I want some of them bomb shelter snacks. This is a description from the Daily Mail article <laughs> about this, and it says, The pair hugged it out as Buscemi64 said, This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> okay, that even the way, <laughs> even his quote sounds like something you say to like, kind of blow off with, Oh yeah, this is like amazing. Thank you. It doesn't so let's feel see th- real. Liam, I want to get your take on the list of other people who got keys to the city recently, which includes Senator Charles Schumer, former Representative Charles Rangel, baseball player Dwight Doc Gooden, members of the 1969 Miracle Mets World Championship team, philanthropist Lori Tisch, musician Patty Lee, Clive Davis, who helped create the Homecoming concert, and filmmaker Spike Lee. Spike Lee got the key. I mean, I do like Spike. I, it, here's the thing. I should be as, maybe not as much as de Blasio, but I should be almost as skeptical of Spike Lee as I am of de Blasio at this point. Right. And there's still a part of me that's like, ah, oh, Spike, man. No, nah, I like him. I like Spike Spike's, Lee. Spike's done some dubious stuff, don't you think? He's a bit of a washed uncle at this point, I feel right. like. You know? he's, he's... What's, what's that mean? Tell me more. <laughs> I'll let you Google it later. Just, <laughs> just Google washed uncle at the barbecue. And consider that part of your uh, education on not white people stuff. 
Liam, uh, there's one more little bit of Steve Buscemi news this week, which is that legendary actor crashes Miley Cyrus yes. and Pete Davidson's New Year's Eve special. So apparently there was some sort of New Year's Eve special that involved Miley Cyrus and Pete Davidson. I did see the promotional photo about it where they both looked very unusual. Um, but apparently this is something that existed. I guess it was on television. I really don't know much about it. Was this on TV? I guess. I don't know. I, I feel like I saw an ad for it. Well, the main thing to know is that I guess there's some sort of feud between Pete Davidson and Steve Buscemi because they were both in that film, The King of Staten Island. And I guess he FaceTimed in and they said he, I guess they're just like playing up the feud or something like that. I don't really care that much. I don't mind Pete Davidson. I'm not one of those people who are like, what's this dude? Why is he dating attractive people? But people want to date Pete Davidson. doesn't bother Come me on. whatsoever. I did the... If some, if one of our listeners, look, let me be sensitive. <laughs> if one of our listeners is out here hating on Pete Davidson, like I get it, I get it, I get it. But that is the smallest, most petty energy you could have in 2022. Say to yourself, look, here's a funny, charming guy who you just got to look at a few pictures to know has a huge dick. Let's stop. <laughs> Let's stop being jealous of him and just let him have sex with whoever wants to have sex with him. Like I just and the thing don't... Is, it, this will all work itself out in the long run. Either he'll, you know, transcend yeah. and then people will everyone will like him yeah. or he'll just go away and either way it works out, right? I mean, yeah. I, I'm not I just it, can't it, be invested in it. All I, I know mean, is like I've seen some of his stand up and some of it's very good and other bots parts of it I don't like at all. But the thing is, really actually funny people they love him. They fucking love this guy. Yeah. So there must be something. Maybe he's just a lot of fun to spend time with. Yeah, plus he's got a story uh, that makes Louis C.K. look really bad, so I like that. I'm into that. I have a story that makes him look pretty bad. I don't know if you heard this one. (laughs) (laughs) This one was about him uh, complaining to Lord Michaels that Pete Davidson smokes too much pot, and it was yes, I remember this one. I remember hearing that story. Fuck. All of that is just crazy. Look, look, I, I just the fact that people are even wrapped up in Pete Davidson's dating life when Kanye's out here going on rebound dates with Julia Fox, clearly there's injustice in the world. All right, let's focus on that. Kanye, right, leave Julia right. Fox alone. <laughs> this is the message. People won't even know what the hell you're talking about when this episode comes out in three days. <laughs> They'll know. This is the they. I, I would believe you if it had been one date, but they've now gone on two dates, Doug. So, literally, there's nothing else in pop culture I could care about until this situation is resolved. No, I mean, no one should really care at all. It's just like the Pete Davidson thing is so weird because his whole vibe is so chill, and then people get so bad at him. And I'm like, I don't understand why we hate this man just because he seems to be relaxed. Like, yeah, I don't get it. And I think he is like I, he's very honest about a lot of his own kind of mental health issues and stuff. And it's like, I like that. That guy should, he should be, let him have a good time. (laughs) The reality will come crash, crashing down eventually for all of us. Hopefully it won't come in the form of severe mental illness and drug issues, but we'll see. Time will tell. Liam, we're here today to talk about big fish, which was, was a big movie in the year 2003, the year in which it came out. I remember it very, very well. People had a lot of emotional response to it. And it is a movie that I feel like hasn't been talked about so much lately Maybe because, and this is something we're going to get into, what has happened with Tim Burton since Big Fish? Because the movies he made post-Big Fish, there's something a little different about him compared to the movies he was making before. Some might say the difference is that they were good before and <laughs> bad after. But I, don't, I think that might be a little too simplistic. And we're not, we're, we're not here to be simplistic on the show. We're going to talk about Big Fish. We're going to talk about how much we cried watching it. We're going to talk about everything right after this. 
Dad, I have no idea who you are. What do you want, Will? Who do you want me to be? Just yourself. Just show me who you are for once. Discover an adventure as big as life itself. In telling the story of my father's life, Bravo Company, go! Doesn't always make sense, but that's what kind of story this is. frustrated son tries to determine fact from fiction in his dying father's life. It's 2003's Big Fish, directed by the great Tim Burton, the director of gothic fantasy and horror films such as Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands. And look, if you're listening to this, you know who Tim Burton is. We'll talk about him in more detail in just a moment. Uh, based on the novel by Daniel Wallace and uh, adapted by John August, a regular uh, kind of collaborator with, uh, with Tim Burton. He also wrote the Charlie's Angels movies. He wrote the movie Go from 1999. Uh, and, uh, yeah, as well as the Aladdin live-action adaptation from a few years ago. Also one of the hosts of the popular screenwriting podcast, Script Notes, starring Ewan McGregor as the young Edward Bloom and Albert Finney as the older version, and his son is played by Billy Crudup in the film. Jessica Lange, Helena Bonham Carter, Alison Lohman, the great Alison Lohman, who unfortunately has retired from acting, it appears. Uh, the great Robert Guillaume is in here as well, the first American film of Marion Cotillard as well. Uh, a lot of famous faces, recognizable faces, and of course we have Steve Buscemi here as Norther Winslow. Liam, this is not a first-time watch for either of us. This is a film that we, I think we both saw when it came out, either in theaters or uh, very soon after it arrived at uh, home, on home video. I both want to get your take on it now, and also how that take has changed since the first time you watched it. What do you think of Big Fish? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I loved this movie for a long time. This was a handshake movie doug this was a mm. show to new girlfriends movie this oh. is a movie that was on my wall poster in like in in theater poster form i got the poster from the theater where i saw the fucking movie like i had one of those original sort of johns that was on my wall from like 2000 four to 2006 sure. 2008 something like that it was a while i like i was into this movie really and i haven't re-watched it in longer than i realized um and honestly that's probably true of a lot of things that i spent uh the o's re-watching you know there's sure. certain movies mm -hmm. that i probably visited a lot that i haven't gone back to yeah Oh, I mean, you joke, but if you went through college in the early 2000s having not watched Boondock Saints at all, let alone multiple times, then good on you. Because I, I saw it, I owned it. it, I watched it over and over, and then revisiting it like six years ago, I was like, what the fuck it was sucks. I thinking? It sucks, it sucks. Honestly, one of the few college movies that still holds up for me is Zoolander, honestly. Sure. Like, we watched that a million times and it's still good. Maybe Super Troopers, maybe. Oh, man, uh, I, I actually revisited Super Troopers, and that was a movie that I watched so much with my brothers and my cousins yeah, that, yeah. that it's like we knew every goddamn word of it. Yeah. I think I still find it funny because I know – like we watched it so often that things that weren't funny became funny. So that kind of stuff – I think it's just a nostalgia thing. I have no such nostalgia for a lot of other movies, including, I have to say, Big Fish. Well, and so that's the thing. I, I have – uh, not in the way you watch Super Troopers, but I had watched Big Fish a number of times because um, 
honestly, at the heart of Big Fish is a question about fathers and sons. Right. Now, for me, mine is a little less complicated, a little less raw than I think a lot of people watching this movie because, uh, you know, my dad just fucked off. So I don't really yes. have much of a, you know, it's like the, the, the thing where it's like people who've never had ice cream don't miss ice cream. If right. they don't know what the fuck it is. Right. So, like, for me, it's not like I missed him. I don't know what any of that means to me. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, but the part of it that did appeal to me a lot, as well as the father issue thing, was this idea. Doug, have you ever heard of the term fabulation? No. Tell me more. So, fabulation sort of, uh, as just a basic definition, is just the creation of untrue things myths right. fables mm -hmm. whatever stories uh but fabulation in critical sort of literary terms has come to mean the process by which we form these legends around uh values that we have so hmm. fabulation is not just lying it's more intentional than that it's about conveying a truth that maybe loses its power when conveyed directly Right. Right. For me, this film was about fabulation to some extent. And that meant a lot to me in college. And it really was like a powerful thing for me. Um, and so there's a number of concerns I have about the movie now rewatching it. Uh, but one of the things that doesn't hit as hard as it did when I first saw it is this angle around fabulation that uh, Albert Finney's father character that you know him more through his stories than you ever could if you were just there in the moment, right? Right. And then that, in fact, the ending affirms that. The only way to remember him is through these stories because they convey something more true, right? I'll tell you what, Doug. I still believe a lot in the idea of fabulation. I, I, I still believe a lot in the idea that there are many truths that are better to come at at an angle than directly, uh, but in an age where so many people can't even believe fucking facts that are <laughs> unavoidable, let alone the obvious conclusions from those facts. And 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 let me back up a little bit and say what I'm about to say sounds like a, I'm a I'm a I'm a science person and I'm not that I believe in what science can do which is convey, record and convey facts. And from those facts, we can draw conclusions. And those conclusions are more reliable than other conclusions because they're based upon facts. I don't go so far as to think, and therefore science is actual truth. For the most part, everything science tells us is too observatory and, and meaningless to be truth in the big sense. Because right. we still have to take those uh, conclusions and then draw meaning from them. And science doesn't give us meaning. That being said... When people can't even get on board with fucking science, a charming story about a man who lies his way through life to get you at a deeper truth is fucking horrifying. Especially when my personal theory around a lot of the right right now is that a lot of truths on the right start purely as an attempt to fucking own the libs. That right. these lies are created to own the libs, and then you slowly create the false pretenses to justify believing the thing, until eventually you take the fucking pill and you believe it, even though you know at some point that it's not really true. You I know mean, what I'm saying? That, isn't that everything, though, right now, right? It's right. just you, the creation of your own reality. I mean, it's, it's hard to... I feel like we're judging this film by it's not a different standard necessarily of 2003 but the world feels like such a different place now and you know i i, I swear i spent my first 35 years on this planet 
believing that, you know, between the, the legend and the fact, you print the legend, and now I just want, want everyone just to give me some fucking truth every once in a while. I know that, I, like you said, there's no defined truth, but it's like, it it feels like this movie is an excuse for the kind of thinking that has damaged society to a pretty substantial degree. I don't want to blame the movie. It's not that I'm saying the movie is at fault, per se, but I just think that was, in 2003, a lot more charming. Yes, absolutely. Than and again, it is it, now. And I, I still think a lot of that charm is still in the film. I want to say that there's only one thing that I think this film, it, it makes a decision, and I'm sure that this comes from the original book, so I'm not blaming Tim Burton or the person adapting it in this case. But So Billy Crudup, he's the son of Albert Finney's character. He's just kind of tired of the fact that his father has spun all these tales. He feels like he doesn't know his father because he only knows these kind of tall tales that he's told. And one of the things that he believes, because his father was a traveling salesman and wasn't at home very much, is that he likely slept around on his mother. And so he goes to Helena Bonham Carter's house and she tells a story that kind of, it's a little bit more kind of grounded than a lot of the tall tales we've heard so far, but it is also somewhat fantastical. And But what it, what it suggests is, oh no, they never slept together or anything like that. She had like a real affinity for him and she probably would have wanted that to happen, but he never did it. It it felt like this movie was trying to make Albert Finney's character so squeaky clean. Like, I'm look, believe me, if he had fucked around on his wife, that is not a good thing. It's not something cool about this character. It's not something that I necessarily wanted. It's just there's there's should have been a, just a little bit of extra darkness to that character that was more reflective of reality because that's what Billy Credit was searching for is a little bit of reality about his father. But this kind of like, uh, like a uh, clean image is something that kind of worked against, I think some of the emotional stuff. And, you know, there's a part in the film, right? When uh, Billy Crudup is at his father's deathbed uh, and the hospital and Robert Guillaume, who plays the doctor in the film he tells him like the real story of his birth as opposed to the fantastical one that his father had been telling his entire life. And he, and he says to him, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's not that much, not that interesting of a story. I prefer the fantasy one. And, and, you know, I think that, that Billy Crudup's character, he says that I prefer the real one, but you can tell that he's kind of wondering about it, that he's kind of wavering at that particular moment in the film. Just like, you know, you can have both. <laughs> you can live in can the I, real can world. I, can I actually complicate what you just said a little bit? Yeah, please. I actually think that the way, the way that the stories work. So this is one of those films where we talked about for people who listen to all of our shows, right? Sure. We yeah. talked about that. <laughs> Whoever those are, if there are yeah, any people. If like any that. of you exist out there. <laughs> we talked about on our show about Alejandro Jodorowsky that prior to The Holy Mountain, I was more inclined to try to decode films than I am right. now. Mm-hmm. This movie was a movie I enjoyed in that time period. And I think my inclination is to say all of the stories represent something true with some act of sort of uh, fabulation and embellishment around this true thing, right? Sure. The thing that 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 I... We are supposed to read into that a little bit. So the thing that I assume, the thing that you are saying is actually what I think is true. Her story in its lack of fucking is a representation romantically of the reality, which is that they did in fact fuck. That because actually it's such a strange, their it's real such, relationship was a fucking relationship and all the stuff around her house was just the nice stuff you say to justify the other stuff. See, I would love, I, I think I think you're probably right. Or maybe I don't, I, I feel really conflicted about it because he goes to see her and he kind of, he asks her straight up. It's like, were you having an affair with my father? 
And you know, she she like looks uncomfortable, and she's like, "You're just you're just gonna come out and say it." And like, I'm not sure how much I should tell you. And then she goes into the story. You're right. It's just that he's looking for honesty at that point, and it's kind of important to him. And she's if if she's just spinning a story that covers up, not that she should say, "Oh yeah, we were just fucking knocking boots." It's just that he just wants a sense of who his father is. You know, I'm coming out of this from a very strange place. For those who listen to our our Christmas episode, it's funny. We 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 went into our somewhat of our issues with our own fathers, or in your case, a a father that disappeared. In mind, one that I was emotionally distant from and who passed away from cancer a few years ago. And I have to say, this was my first time watching Big Fish since my father passed away. And right. there was a deeper resonance. Yeah. And But what it left me, and that's probably complicating some of my feelings regarding that too. It's like, I did not feel when my father passed away that I knew him. And in some ways, maybe I didn't want to know too much about him. I don't have this kind of pristine image of who he was. But maybe I also hold on to a certain resentment as well. Mm-hmm. And and at the end of this movie, you know, it, and, and let's not get this wrong. The end of this movie is amazing. And it's incredibly emotionally affecting. And I okay. cried at it. I cried at it just like I did back in 2003. And I cried this time. And part of that crying was about my emotional reaction to thinking about my own father and stuff like that. It's just I feel like this movie and maybe the source material as well, this this kind of sense that fantasy can provide us the key to realities that we don't necessarily want to face is both a kind of a hopeful, fun idea, but also doesn't reflect my own reality very much. I I totally see what you're saying. What this allows me to tie in my other thing because it's connected to this, right? Sure. I'm I actually still believe that fantasies can function that way and often do function that way. But they can also allow us to romanticize negative things. That's why my read of her story is that she's romanticizing their affair. And it also ties into a larger issue I have with uh with uh Burton. Uh, that relates to the film The Corpse Bride. Right. In which we're supposed to have feelings for either one of these women that he, that Johnny Depp's character might end up with. You know what I sure. mean? Like, mm-hmm. is it the, is it, you know, which makes more sense, whatever. It's just this feeling that I get in some of his stuff that he has ambiguous feelings about uh, commitment Mm-hmm. And about monogamy, and and so the way that this functions, this to me, the story that she tells allows the character to romanticize. The story is the romanticized version of what is basically a guy who wasn't entirely faithful, and sure, and and can't deal with the fact that maybe he loved two people, and rather than deal with the complicated feelings of that, the story makes it more about something else entirely. And and, Man, and I do that, think the story is just to interrupt, but it's also I think there's a sense also that in the long run it's not important, right? right? When a man is dying, right, the fact that his wife loves him and that 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 a lot of those kind of transgressions they they don't mean that much compared but if to you the, tie, but, the whole. But I get that, but you got to tie it back into the we meet Jenny when he see when he is in right. that community first, and it's too soon for him because he's got to mm-hmm. go do what sow his wild oats or some bullshit. The whole thing is run through with this feeling of him being too big for the world around him. Right, right, and 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 that 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 aspect of the movie for me as a forty two year old man who still doesn't understand why I'm not famous and rich. <laughs> 
it's just it's just a fucking fantasy that we tell ourselves because we suspect that we are the main characters. And what's always felt weird to me about Burton is that I do think this is a theme in some of his movies, but he is famous. Like what I don't get is this thing where he's like these characters are like, well, I need to prove myself to the world. And I'm like, well, he, he kind of have done that, right? Although maybe he hasn't now that he just keeps producing terrible movies. But it's funny because he's been like a household name, you know, in the kind of circles that we care forever. about such a thing since he was in his 20s. Yeah, since like you could say at least since like Beetlejuice, right? Maybe, yeah, absolutely. Ever scissor hands I mean, certainly you, 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 he could not be denied once Batman came out because, right. I mean, that was not only did he break all that new ground with it, but I mean, like that was Tim Burton's Batman. Everyone right. knew it. There's just something going on to the. Uh, to the fantasy aspect of this film that I think is hiding. When I first saw it, I thought it was just about this guy's reaching for something bigger and, and, and you know, his life seems more majestic and it lives on in our memory. There's all this stuff in there about legacy that was very attractive to me as a 20 something that now as a 42 year old, I'm like, I don't know, having a closer relationship with the people around you would have been just as good. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I yeah. don't know. There's, there's a certain aspect to which the the creating the legend there's a better term than fabulation that i'm looking for this sort of um uh hagiography of his life mm. right mm-hmm. uh where it's he's making myths and he's making you know religious tales almost out of his life sure. mm-hmm. that that's about aggrandizement and and of course that appeals to burton to some extent but now it just seems less romantic to me and it feels like instead of just taking something and revealing an inner truth it sometimes feels like it's hiding an inner truth, that there was something else going on that was just as valuable. Uh, to put it another way, he's obscuring the reality because, like you said, the doctor says, well, the real story is not that interesting. But maybe if we looked at those real stories in a different way, they would be just as good in their own way, is right. I guess what I'm feeling. That's what ended up hitting me raw a little bit, which isn't to say that the motivating factor of this guy finally finding the respect for his dad that he needs to find uh, and, and their relationship healing because he finally is willing to take his dad at his own. Like the, the part of the ego part of this that is also at play is Billy Crudup's character, because really what's going on is he's refusing to take his dad on his dad's terms. Yeah. Right. So, like, I get that. But that also is true that his dad is refusing to take the world on anyone else's terms either. But don't so, you think that the film kind of presents Billy Crudup's character as not a villain, certainly. He's still one of the main characters. But, like, it's like, hey, man, why can't yeah. you just get with yeah. it? Right. Right. No, can't one, you? 100 percent. Yes. That's the that is the bias of the movie. <laughs> Liam, Tim Burton is a director. Who has had? Who has? I should say, a complicated legacy. Uh-huh. Um, I, I joked about it already that the movies before Big Fish and the movies this feels like kind of like a marker point for the movies that came afterwards. I have mixed feelings. Not, are not as not even strong enough of a word. I outright negatively. I, I outright dislike a lot of the films that he made after Big Fish. And let's just list them just quickly. They include 2005's. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Boo. The Corpse Bride, which you mentioned, Boo. which uh, he co-directed. I mean, the, uh, let's let's be fair though. When the Corpse Bride came out, I liked it. It's only in rewatch that I've come to not appreciate some of its gender politics. Sure, 2007 Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, the adaptation of the musical. 2010's Alice in Wonderland. Wow. Uh, in 2012, he made both Dark Shadows and directed the stop motion version of Frank and Weenie. Yay. Um, 2014's Big Eyes. 2016's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Boo. and 2019's Dumbo. Um, 
of that list, I like Frankenweenie. And there are things I like about the Sweeney Todd adaptation, even though I don't like a lot of it. And that is pretty much it. I don't enjoy any of those other movies. Big Eyes, I think, is okay. It felt like him attempting to like go backwards and make a movie that was a little more grounded and and that people. But it felt like it felt like too conscious an attempt to do that. I just what what I loved about Tim Burton, which which by the way extended past things like you know Mars Attacks and of course Ed Wood, um, and certainly back to his eighties work. It feels like that's all gone now. Do you think it actually is gone? Or what is it? What happened to Tim Burton? I don't know. If anyone can figure it out, I feel like they would have cracked a million-dollar code because um, I agree. Like, Well, Frankenweenie, it's almost like I want to study Frankenweenie and figure out why did this one work when everything around it didn't work. Uh, What was it about Frankenweenie? And is it because it's originally a story from when he was younger? Hmm. And there's one aspect of Frankenweenie that very much doesn't work for me uh, that I feel like maybe reflects some of his changes. I don't know. I don't know, Doug. I don't know. And, and it also makes me wonder, and I have revisited some of his older stuff and still liked it, but I wonder if 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 someone were to do a full watch through of all of it, if maybe some of the older stuff would feel different in light of the newer stuff. I don't know. Hmm. <sighs> Of these, like I'm, I, I'm looking at this list right now, and I'm seeing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I despise. I just think it's, and and like I'm not even one of those people. that's like, oh, the, the the Gene Wilder version is this masterpiece. You can't improve on it. When I was a kid, I loved the book. I just read the book again and again and again. So to me, it's like, oh, you could make an adaptation of this that is newer that could do different things. But I just felt like everything about it was just so much like ugly CG, and it just felt completely devoid of any um, I mean emotion is a weird word to use but really kind of emotional connection to the material and that feels like the pattern that he has set for a lot of his work since then Alice in Wonderland I think is that even worse it's it's even cranked up further and further and there's a sequel to that that's even worse than that I just feel like his aesthetic which was so much a part of what he brought to the table has been perverted into this very uh, a glossy, uh, unpleasant thing to experience. And it's not even like as much just like the CG thing versus the physical effect thing, though that was part of it, I think, with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It just feels like he su- he suddenly has all of these tools to bring his imagination to life because he's obviously a very visual thinker, but he's used them to to kind of, what I should say is maybe the pure version of his imagination is just super unpleasant to look at. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm completely off on that. It just it there's there's really n- so little of what he brought to the table in something like Beetlejuice that I feel in something like Dumbo, which I know a lot of people even liked his Dumbo adaptation, but it just doesn't feel like he's in there. I don't I mean I'm I don't know. I I mean I would say for me it can't just be aesthetics, right? Because right. Cor- if you're going by aesthetics, Corpse Bride is very Tim uh uh um Tim Burton. Tim Burton. My brain, <laughs> As is Frankenweenie. My brain, my brain went to go say Tim Robbins, and I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? Um, Corpse Bride is very Tim Burton, and for me, it does not work. It certainly doesn't compare to fucking Nightmare, Nightmare Before, Before Christmas, Christmas. Right. which is like, it almost feels like it should be a sequel to it in some ways. And, and I think it's, it's of course, different. we have to point it out just to make sure people are aware. 
we know that Tim Burton did not direct The Nightmare Before Christmas. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. That's right. But again, it, you know, uh, or even like one would think that maybe a bunch of his aesthetics would transfer to Sweeney Todd. And maybe they do to some extent. But it, I just feel like the movie isn't enjoyable. Like Sometimes I, I it feels like him. It's like he's doing an impression of someone trying to do Tim Burton. Right. It's like someone trying to capture that. And it's like, oh, I can see where the holes in it because this isn't pure like the Tim Burton, which like when he is on and and it also it isn't kind of like the spooky i think they call it the 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 gothic nightmare aesthetic or or something along those lines yeah the the gothic suburbia right which you saw in something like edward scissorhands but when he tones that down in something like edward i still love it i still love that like when he when you can tell that he really loves and has a passion for that subject matter i think his visuals are just as interesting as when he can just go buck wild so uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know why I can't connect to this work. Or maybe it's not me. Maybe it's him. I just, I just, I, I really struggle with it. Here's the, the issue for me is simply this, Doug. I love the movies pre-Big Fish, but I've never been so wowed by them that when he fell off, I thought, well, this is the greatest crime to cinema. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's sort of like a, it's a weird anomaly. I kind of want to understand it, but I'm also fine. No, nothing he's done have I thought, oh, no, I can't believe he ruined Alice in Wonderland for me or Dark right. Shadows. Right. Well, like, I had enough. no expectations of those properties anyway. The only thing I was worried about, actually, was Frankenweenie because I thought there's a lot of potential here for this to be good. And then it was good. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Do you have concerns? I don't know if you have any uh, affection for this property. Do you have any concerns about his Adams Family adaptation? Yes and no. Um, I... <sighs> I'm not as connected to Adam's family as some other people, but I do have sure. some affection for the the movie uh, versions. The movie versions, although I will say that with the movie versions, I love uh, Raul Julia. I do love Raul Julia. Oh, I thought no, that's what you were going to say. Sorry. No, what what's her name? Who's Wednesday? Oh, uh, Christina Ricci. I love her as Wednesday, but if you actually pay attention to old Adams family, she's creating that character whole cloth. That Absolutely. is not Wednesday mm-hmm. Adams. That is her version of Wednesday Adams. And I, I love that to some extent, but I do wonder if we're just gonna have to deal with people copying her forever now. One hundred percent. And that because, that because she was such I mean, that basically made her career to a certain extent. She was kind of the breakout character from it, and now that is like when people think of Wednesday Adams, they don't think of the original television version. They think of her version of it. I will say that the animated Adams Family, the first one, wasn't that bad. I've watched mm-hmm. it because of with Maeve. It's for children. I get why adults wouldn't like it, but a lot of the jokes work. Whereas the sequel is trash, just unwatchable oh, garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's weird because I had so low expectations for the first one, and then you know when you have a four year old, you just watch whatever cartoons they want to watch. And so when they're actually good, you're like, oh, look at this. All right. That wasn't terrible. Okay. I have to be on. This is a weird thing for me to be feeling right now. I'm actually a little bit excited for the Rob Zombie Monsters adaptation way more than I am interested in the Tim Burton Adams family. And I don't have I mean, any affection I have, for Rob I have Zombie. always wanted to watch the Monsters fuck, which I assume he'll have. Maybe that's what and he'll have. And then they'll murder right? each other. And but that's fine. Baby. Look, again, I don't care about the Monsters that much, so it doesn't really bother me if he decides to go like, total Rob Zombie on it. Yeah, but I'm I sure think... I'm sure we've always wanted to hear the monsters use the hard F. So <laughs> I'm sure. I don't know. I think he's gonna I think he likes the property too much. I mean I would think I would have said that about Halloween, but obviously that's not what happened there. But I just think he 
I think he really kind of purely loves it, but we'll see. Maybe I'm completely wrong about it. Maybe, yeah, maybe the the comparison doesn't work like with 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 our man uh, Burton here. As much as there's evidence of him being terrible, there's also evidence of him being pretty good. And I get right. that there are people who don't like his good movies either because they're just not their vibe. But for me, I'm like, as far as I'm concerned, Rob Zombie has not hit anything out of the park. No, he's got that's one, true. He's got one movie I enjoy, and it's the movie that most of his fans think sucks. So I just don't think I'm I'm stoked on. I, I guess my only uh, uh, interest is like I I have a feeling that the Tim Burton Adams family is going to be. Just kind of a bland disappointment, right? It's it's not going to have any of the visual visual energy of the Barry Sonnenfeld films. While I feel like the Munsters might have the potential to just be this big swing garbage movie, but at least it will be interesting. Well, let's swing <laughs> let's swing back into a big fish conversation. Yeah, I, please. I do think I do think it's worth mentioning. In a real way, this movie broke his aesthetic, right? That, right? Like you could say every movie before this one is a Tim Burton movie. And this is not in many ways, though it might have some similarities here and there, a Tim Burton movie in the same way. Uh, yeah. I, I would argue that the inclusion of uh, uh, the Upper Darby native as the tall man, you know, there, there was a bit of Burton in that. Like, let's sure. actually get someone who is impressively large to play this role, you know, like, and, and big ups for that guy, you know, big ups to the Philadelphia area. Like that was, that was good for them. But, uh, and then he also was in that, that Rob Zombie movie. Yeah, Sorry. yeah exactly. <laughs> so such a bummer, but you know, but, but I will say that other than that, like big fish, I, I do wonder if big fish was the movie that made, uh, Burton feel like, look, I can do whatever I want. Like, yeah. look, I did my thing that felt very much my thing, but the world is changing. I mean, I, I would say that the 2000s, for your average late 80s, early 90s goth, the 2000s must have been fucking terrifying, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. Ev- everything that you thought was cool has become lame mall bullshit, and all the other stuff. Like, there, like, there was nothing about what was underground culture that reflected Tim Burton's lifestyle Everything is embarrassing. Uh, we're seeing the first seeds of of the racist Morrissey. Well, not the first, but the first noticeable ones. Sure, for right. most of his fans. for the mainstream certainly. Yeah, right. uh, and so like, uh, you know, I'm sure he's trying to figure his shit out because he doesn't want to be the night. I mean, in a sense, he's just that guy who would do, uh, you know. Uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas, even though he didn't direct it, I know, guys. But you know what I mean? Like, he he is that aesthetic, right? Sure. I mean, it's worth noting that in the 2010s was when uh, uh, Davey Havoc from AFI got his uh, arm piece that was all Nightmare Before Christmas covered up, right? Sure. Like, like the time had come to move on, and I think Burton was trying to figure out how to move on and failing again and again. But I wonder if he thought he could do it because – he moved on in a sense with Big Fish and it hit it out of the park. Now, there are parts of this movie that I don't like now as a 42-year-old person, but I think the general consensus was like, good on you. Like, you made a movie that isn't a Burton movie and it's great. Good work. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wonder if it's it's sort of like if you have a band that has a one lane and then they experiment a little bit and people sure. love it and then they can never figure out what the next thing is. That's how it feels to me as a yeah. It does, as a I mean, I may, maybe that's movies. what it is. It does. The, the thing about a movie like 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 Beetlejuice or or even his Batman movie to a really great extent is it doesn't feel like he was making an appeal to the mainstream in a large way. He just liked this kind of stuff that also appealed to a large number of people. With this movie, it felt like, you know, he's adapting a book. 
He's restraining some of his tendencies in terms of the visuals of the film. Even though it's a movie kind of based in fantasy, you're right. It doesn't feel that much like the Tim Burton aesthetic that we've been talking about. It feels like a very restrained version of it. And ever since then, you know, a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory starring, you know, biggest movie star in the world, Johnny Depp. and all, that, that feels like, oh, I can make really big Hollywood mainstream movies, which just have pieces and parts of the kind of vibe that I put into my movies previously. And these can be huge successes. And he has had lots of financial successes since then. But boy, I just like everything I loved about his work, or even just liked about his work previously, it just seems to have been drained of. And maybe it it seems like a very conscious decision to do that. We also have to say that just because we don't understand someone's decisions, that doesn't make them wrong. Like maybe he is on the path he feels like he needs to be on. I just don't understand it. And I don't appreciate what he's putting out. Whereas with this movie, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is um, his ability. Like he's got Helena Bonham Carter in this, right? Who is someone he's worked with a ton, right? Um, She's not being played for one note here the way I think she gets played in some other films. Yeah, that's true. That's really interesting. On the other hand, he's got Ewan McGregor in this, and he's doing the same shit-eating grin the whole movie. That's true. And I think it works for the movie, but some part of me is like, this had to be annoying to play, right? Like, <laughs> right. it's certainly getting annoying to watch a little bit. <laughs> Albert Finney, as the as the real-world version, gets to be a little bit more, right? He yeah, gets to be cranky true. and moody and sick and, and jubilant. Uh, and and whatever. Whereas you and McGregor is just you and McGregor the whole movie. And I know in what is possibly one of the worst Southern accents I've ever heard in my life. You know, I never really talked about it, but just to bring it back, just just briefly, it's funny to think. You know, if someone was to tell me in 1993, "Hey, Tim Burton's going to make an adaptation of the Adams Family," I'd be like, "Of course he is, right? Of course that's the, exactly the sort of property that he would be uh, tied up in." But the thing is, those Barry Sonnenfeld directed Adams Family movies were clearly inspired by the success of Tim Burton at that time. Agreed. I mean, those movies wouldn't look the way they looked if it wasn't for the success that Tim Burton already had. So the Tim Burton version has already kind of happened and existed in some way in those movies. It's just going to be really weird to see someone do another adaptation of something that has already been adapted by someone who was kind of biting his style at the time. Yeah, I'm sure there's other examples of it, but it is. A, this is a very... It, it'd be kind of like... If uh, if uh, before he died, someone had wanted Kurosawa to direct a spaghetti western. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, we're if doing I... an American adaptation of the Magnificent Seven, but in America, do you want to direct it, Kurosawa? <laughs> you know, and it's um, the thing is, uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, like I don't know. That's that's how it feels. Is like the Adams family happened because of Burton, and now he's going to do his version of it. My my worry is he's going to feel pressure to do it completely. We're going to get some weird other kind of Adams family that we're not expecting. <laughs> Maybe that will be for the best. Um, I actually what you were speaking of it reminded me of that adaptation, that Japanese adaptation of Unforgiven that came out a few years ago. I saw that at the Toronto International Film Festival. The idea that, you know, a Japanese adaptation of a Western that is supposed to be a kind of uh, bookend to an era of Westerns that was kind of started by Clint Eastwood with Sergio Leone, who was adapting Akira Kurosawa. It was this weird amalgam. And the unfortunate thing is that version of Unforgiven, that Japanese one, not very good. (laughs) It just didn't work. But I thought the idea was so interesting that you almost had to appreciate that someone someone was like, we need to do this just to put some closure on the whole idea. (laughs) Liam, 
One thing we can all agree on is the actor Steve Buscemi, who uh, thankfully doesn't just show up once in this film, but twice in, actually, in multiple times, but two kind of notable pieces of the film. So in the movie, Ewan McGregor ends up going to um, a, a place called Spectre, where there's a suggestion that it's some sort of like afterlife-ish type place, but he ends up going through the woods, ends up in this kind of idyllic town, the kind that you sometimes do see in Tim Burton movies. And here he runs into um, Norther Winslow, who is also from the same town that he came from and is a poet. Uh, we find out that he's having trouble finding some inspiration in this uh, this little burg. Eventually, Ewan McGregor, he leaves uh, Spectre, and then he reconnects with Norther Winslow later when he... <laughs> Northern Winslow has also left Spectre because he realizes that there's more that he wants to see in the world, and he has become a bank robber. And uh, and we find that uh, that well, I don't always get the character that Edward Bloom, uh, played by uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, gets wrapped up in this uh, bank robbery as well. And then uh, we find out as well that because uh, he realizes there's more money to be made in the oil industry, that Northern Winslow goes on to that and ends up becoming a very wealthy man, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's start with the performance itself. Look, we, we love Steve Buscemi and so much. How did he kind of take to the Tim Burton aesthetic in Big Fish? I mean, I it's the small role. It's, it, you know, a classic example of like we're evaluating not a huge role. Uh, and at first, as the poet... This is also, sorry to, st- to interrupt you, Luke. This is also, you know, Steve Buscemi in 2003. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows the kind of roles he does. When you see him... You, it's hard to get past the idea that you're looking at Steve Buscemi at this point because everyone knows the kind of roles that he does. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so, like, him at first being this, like, uh, very content, goofy poet who can't write any real poetry, <laughs> that's kind of a side... It's kind of a silly joke. It's like a sight gag. But yeah. I kind of loved it when he... The turn, then, is that he's a fucking bank robber. That was pretty <laughs> cool. I was into that. And then just the idea that he explains to him how securities work, and he goes off to Wall Street, was also, like, a, a goofy joke, but one that I felt like worked pretty well. Uh, but, you know, you know, Buscemi's not given a lot to do here, so it's, it's a little hard to evaluate. But I f- did find him charming in, in the role. I liked... Uh, there's a little piece at the very end, at the funeral where he is there and he's telling a story. And we don't know exactly the, the the entirety of what he's saying, but he's telling about Edward Bloom's life. He's like telling basically his own big fish, tall tale story in it. And like he, he kind of gets emotional as he's saying it a little bit. And I thought that was a really nice kind of piece of acting, even if, if it was kind of like an important part to show that in the real world, these characters kind of transcend these stories and that these stories will continue on in different forms. I really like that. But like you said, for the most part, there isn't a lot for him to do. He does it very well because this is what Steve Buscemi is kind of known for. I did love that when, um, when Edward Bloom first gets to Spectre and he's being introduced to the town uh, and he's sitting and eating the, the, the pie and Steve Buscemi is just kind of laying back in his chair with yeah. his fucking yeah. shit eating. <laughs> he's just like, well, you know, at first you're kind of like, it's kind of like Twilight zone It's like, Ooh, what's the deal with all this? Nope. It's just that everyone is super happy and content to live in this extremely white fucking I mean, place. <laughs> I mean, you do have to wonder if, to what extent, if it feels Twilight zone because Burton just naturally doesn't trust any place where there's this many <laughs> like happy people eating pie. You know, it just naturally feels like kind of hostile to him. I just like the idea that a place that is basically, you know, that you are supposed to mistake it for the afterlife in its perfection, that eventually it 
all gets boarded up and has to close down because of the, exactly the sort of greedy capitalists that are kind of at the, the, the edges of some of the other parts of the story as well. And then we find out that Edward Bloom bought the entire um, town and, and, and kind of brought it back to life. I mean, I think that Steve Buscemi is more interesting in the bank robber part of it simply because he has a little bit more to do. I also like that there's no major consequence to that bank robbery, that they steal the money at the little bit that they get. And there's no like, oh, we're, we're going to get in trouble for this. Nope, there's not even a concern about it. They're on the road. And and there's the, there's not even more uh, much of a moral... Um, there isn't really much of a moral condemnation of Steve Buscemi's character for doing it. He's a cool guy. He's cool for bank robbing. He's cool for writing poetry. Whatever he does is cool by this movie. What I'm trying to say, Liam, is that robbing a bank is a victimless crime. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I, I mean, in essence, that's kind of what Burton suggests, which is like the bank has kind of ripped off all the people because they all think their money is in there. There's no money in the bank, you know? So, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't, well, I don't have your money. Um, sorry, I had to work my Jimmy Stewart in no, there. No, that's great. No, that's uh, awesome. Let's read a couple of letterbox reviews of Big Fish. I want to get your take on this. First one here, it says, The last good film Tim Burton has made, the only good film Tim Burton has made in this century the best film Tim Burton has ever made. God, I hate Tim Burton. Any thoughts on that? This is from uh, Boy Rorbison. I can't hate Tim Burton. I don't know. Maybe I do. It's I, not worth hating because it's easy no. to ignore, right? Yeah, like who cares? I, I don't know. I'm not invested in this take. What If you found out tomorrow that Tim Burton was adapting your favorite book, how would you feel about that? I guess I would be anxious, but I don't know. I... Yeah, I I don't know what book I like that Tim Burton would adapt that I'd be like, oh, no, don't do it. <laughs> it's so funny to think, like, in 1995, when I heard that Tim Burton was making a movie about Ed Wood, I was like, that's amazing. And I love it. right? I still love it. But if I found out today that he was making a movie about Ed Wood, I'd be like, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I first heard about him doing Dark Shadows, I thought, that might be okay. I don't know. Maybe, maybe yeah. he'll pull it off. And then he did not pull it off. This is a review from Brat on Letterboxd. Perfect storytelling plus beautiful aesthetics plus Steve Buscemi equals better than Forrest Gump. Any thoughts on there? That's easy. Forrest Gump sucks. So <laughs> but doesn't it hard. kind of feel this movie doesn't have it does have kind of that it does have echoes of Forrest Gump in it. I guess so, maybe. Um I I don't know. I don't really see I other than the idea of storytelling, I don't really see the relationship. I mean, I think it, the fact that it goes from these kind of fantastical heights to also switching on, not necessarily on a dime, but very much into very dramatic modeling uh, sequences that are meant to elicit emotions. And sometimes you might feel a little uh, manipulated by that, maybe. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, that, that's fair, I guess. I guess for me, the bummers of Forrest Gump is the ways that it ignores certain aspects of history, which I guess this movie could be accused of doing. But for the most part, it's so detached from the real world yeah, that you never exactly. bother worrying about history. And it's one family story as opposed to something bigger. Yeah, no, I get that entirely. Liam, remember the early 2000s? We were talking about it just a little while ago. Sure. Well, in the early 2000s, one thing that I like that I don't like anymore is Robert Rodriguez, the director. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds like something I don't... Well, I mean, I, I think he directed a couple episodes of The Mandalorian, right? I guess that's mm -hmm. okay. He certainly did. Yeah, that seems so, okay. That's it's fine. I'll just hey, have recency not, bias and say he doesn't seem so bad. We're not haters here. I'm not saying I hate the guy. It's just that I really liked him, and now eh, I have a, kind of a similar feeling about him as I do with Tim Burton. Well, 
I was really into him back in the mid-90s when he made a movie called Desperado, which was a sequel to a movie that he made earlier, a few years earlier, for almost no money, called El Mariachi. Well, Desperado was a big movie for me in the mid-90s. I have not revisited it in detail for a number of years, Liam. I'm not sure how I'll feel about it now, but I will be revisiting it very soon because on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we're going to talk about Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek and Quentin Tarantino and Cheech Marin and, of course, Steve Buscemi in 1995's Desperado. Are you excited about that? Desperado. That's right. Why don't you come to your senses? What do you think about the Eagles? Uh, whatever. I do like Antonio <laughs> Banderas. Antonio Banderas? You like him? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to be into it. But it's, it's again, it's one of those films that maybe I haven't wanted to revisit for fear that I don't like it anymore. But, it, you know, you got to do it, man. You got to you got to do it. You got to uh, you got to smash your idols or something. I liked Robert Rodriguez as someone who was like, I can do things that usually would take a group of people by myself and I can make that work even on a like a, a blockbuster level because of the talents that I have and that I've developed by making super low budget movies. I like that. And he was still deeply into that with Desperado. I also and I'm going to repeat this on the episode. I am of the feeling that Antonio Banderas is the most attractive man who's probably ever existed. And Salma Hayek is probably the most beautiful woman who's ever existed. And they were at their hottest in 1995 when they put this movie together. So it's in terms of an attractive group, that's this is quite a movie for that. For me, this is a boner movie. What do you think about that? Man, Pete Davidson's right there. Now he's sad. <laughs> You're talking like this. <laughs> and then you got Quentin Tarantino's fucking face right in the middle. <laughs> Uh, Liam, on the next episode, we will be talking about 1995's Desperado. If people want to check out more of our work, whether it be about Steve Buscemi or otherwise, or any of your own work, what's the best way for them to do so? They can head over to cinepunks.com. Check out not just this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts over there, as well as uh, some fun writing and some merch. Or they can check out our archives over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. They can also check out Cinepunks on social media, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And, of course, we are on Twitter at Cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. You can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter as well. That's at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. Or if you want to, you can follow me at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. If you want to leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice, we'd appreciate it very, very much. We would love bringing you content here at Cinema Smorgasbord featuring all of your favorite actors and directors and whatnot. Uh, in the year 2022, is going to bring a lot of surprises for the podcast. Maybe we'll have a new podcast launching. We'll see in the next few months or so. Check out our recently launched podcast, like George Kennedy is my co-pilot, and as well as our ongoing look at the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky, and, of course, all of our podcasts over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. But for now, Liam, we need to close up the Steve Buscemi bag. We're going to be back very soon with 1995's Desperado. Good night, everyone. Night-night. <laughs> Every day it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Every day it's a getting faster. Everyone said go ahead and ask her. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, 